Hey, thanks for downloading the show. Oshie here. John Severin's on the show today. And before we get to John, uh, you might hear an ad. Why would you hear an ad? Because I need to pay the people who work with me. I've got to pay Andy, I've got to pay Rachel. So if you hear an ad, thank you. You help us keep the lights on. If you don't hear an ad, we'll get to John Saffron saying something cool. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You've seen my work. Oh, John goes and hangs out with these clansmen, and it's like, of course he would, because that's fascinating. But then, it, yeah, it's become this real recent thing where it's like, why are you platforming a... I went to the Ku Klux Klan as a Jew and sat there and blah, and the way I framed it, as if anyone, as if there's like one person out there who on a sincere level is like, oh, my God, he's giving, he's giving a platform uh, so the Ku Klux Klan can advocate them. It's just like so disingenuous. And so if you're a writer who's too unimaginative and too lazy to like leave, leave your keyboard and you just want to kind of have an angle, then your angle is always deconstructing other things that are out there and, you know, the people that that have hit the streets. That is author, journalist and, I guess, all-round interesting agitator, John Zafran. And this is episode 401 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. If this is your first time on the show, it's a podcast called Better Than Yesterday. Just here to try to help you make today better than yesterday. Something to hear on the show today will help you do 
just that. Go to bed tonight and go, you know what, I feel like I know more or I, I can do something different or I've got an awareness that things might be better today than they were yesterday. That's it. Like, there's 400 other episodes that you're more than welcome to go back and have a listen to. I'm here Mondays and Fridays. Mondays I'm here with a guest. Fridays I'm here with you. You can always find me on uh, email, sendosheremail at gmail.com. Also find me on Instagram, osher underscore Ginsburg. Thanks for all the great feedback, both on Instagram and uh, on the emails about the Mitch Tambo episode. It touched a lot of people in ways that they weren't expecting to be touched. So thanks heaps. That's a really, really big, uh, big deal. And also thanks for all the support around episode 400. I'm really grateful for that. Really, really grateful for that. So you can always get in touch with me. Send us your email at gmail.com. That's, uh, that's where I am. Oh, uh, I forgot to tell you who I am. I'm Osher. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a podcaster. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm an electric transportation enthusiast. And uh, yeah, that's, I think that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. And I'm currently drinking iced tea because it's a hot summer's day, but it's fucking September. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, let me tell you about my guest today. Oh, I've got to tell you, this is an interesting one. Okay. So John Safran's on the show today. I love... John Safran. I've known John for a very long time. We met in the mid-2000s and I was a fucking mega fan. He was on a TV show called Racing Around the World in 1997. It was kind of like the first time, and we talk about this, it's kind of like the first time people turn these tiny little handy cams back around on themselves and, and, and filmed as if they were talking straight to camera. And I took his particular style and I ran with it. And what I learned from watching John is the kind of thing that helped me make my demo tape that got to Channel V, which then propelled me. So I was enormously, enormously influenced by John and John's work. And I have been the whole time. His you know, his TV shows, John Seferin's Music Jamboree, I, I found really fascinating and really interesting. And I, I loved his radio show that he used to do with Father Bob as well. John is an extraordinary author. His most recent book is called Puff Peace, How Philip Morris Set Vaping Alight and Burned Down the English Language. It's a conversation all about... I guess how the cigarette industry uh, just keeps on keeps on going, and it's uh, kind of interesting. So you should go and get John Safran's brand new book called Puff Pace. Now, here's the thing: this interview, this interview is uh, a little older than this book. So I went down to Melbourne for I can't remember what, and I, I knew I was going down. So I said, "Hey, John, can you do you have a moment?" Because he and I used to play Scrabble against each other quite a bit. He's a very good Scrabble player. So he and I used to play Scrabble against each other quite a bit. So can you come on the podcast and we can talk about your book, Depends What You Mean by Extremist, Growing Rogue with Australian Deplorables. And we wanted to talk about the kind of extremist scene here in, uh, in Australia. And he was into it and it was great and we had a good chat. And then that memory card inside the recorder that I took down with me somehow ended up in, I don't know... I found it a few months later in a camera bag. I don't know how it got into the camera bag, but it, it got into a camera bag. So I was looking for it. So I couldn't release the interview in time with his previous book. By the time I found it, look, it was only, it wasn't long. It was only like 10 weeks later or something. But then it was full COVID, all right? And all the podcasts I was doing were all around about COVID and, and lockdowns and, and things like this. And the time kind of passed to make it like a, a good opportunity to make a spike for John. And I was like, fuck, what do I do now? And then John very cleverly wrote a new book. <laughs> so now I'm grateful to be able to present this brand new, old, 
interview with John Safran, who's an amazing man. I absolutely adore him. He's very, very, very clever. And you would do well to dive into his world. You can find him on Instagram, John Safran, J-O-H-N-S-A-F-R-A-N. He's also at johnsafran.com and he's the same on Twitter at John Safran. As I said, his most recent book is called John Safran Puff Peace, How Philip Morris Set Vaping Alight and Burned Down the English Language. It's uh, out right now, came out last week. Get amongst it. Enjoy John Safran. I'm so grateful we got to do this, man. Cool. Yeah, of course. Long time coming. Mm. I did Q&A last night. You were on Q&A? Yeah. I didn't, I'll have to watch. Climate I, Solutions on Q&A. Uh, I'm so, whenever I watch Q&A, I always imagine myself sitting there and thinking, thank God I'm not sitting there because how would I answer that question? Because I've been on there and it's, uh, I'm, I'm just not equipped for uh, talking. So I that, disagree. But, 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 but. but it's it's very it's it's hard to be on that show unless you want to be a person who has a wide range of passions yeah. that you're willing to put forth. Yeah, and so so it's it's hard when it goes outside your area of expertise. True, like I, like I can have passions. Yeah, it's, I, I've got nothing against the environment. I'm not yeah. kicking down flowers or something when yeah. I'm or whatever I'm but but if I was like asked about climate I'd just be thinking I don't have the you know I already sound guilty now really like <laughs> listeners are like you a-hole what so you hate the climate do you oh I suppose you hate that Greta you know it's not that at all no I'm just saying I'm just saying it's, it's you go on that show I, I've also noticed on that show what you really have to do is say a a little prepackaged soundbite of yeah. something that Everyone on your side agrees with that can be on either side. Yeah, it's very hard to sort of in- a, to introduce yeah something that's more concept, yeah, yeah that's more complicated than that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you say that because that is the homework that I did coming into it. I'm like, okay, we're probably going to cover this, 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 this. How can I digest all the harrowing, terrifying information that is around, you know? Temperature rise, sea level rise, desertification, drought, uh, you know, economic inequality, colonialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How can I make that into two sentences that someone who's barely passed or failed grade 10 science and then never did it again, how can I talk to them? And so that was what a lot of the work was. And then coming into it, it was then, all right, then how do I, how do I put this like that? And so, yeah. That was that. The only thing I noticed, and it's not just q it sounds like I'm like laying into Q&A, but it's not really. It's, I'm just, right. it's just you bothered to bring that up as a sample, and I have been on that show, is that I think sometimes conversations can be, oh, let's start on picking the messiness of this, mm. and that can be enough for that, that particular conversation, whilst on Q&A you have to not only have some advocacy but a government solution to whatever. Mm. So... So, for instance, if I was to say on Q&A that, oh, it's crazy when I went to those rallies between, you know, the far right and, you know, the left or whatever because of this and that and blah, 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 I could never just leave it at that. You'd have to go, well, does that mean that 
people should be banned from protesting? Like, and does yeah. that mean that? You're right, though. I mean, and, but that is the nature of the format in many ways. And I think any time you try to, as you have no doubt explored in your work, yeah. any time you try to explore something extraordinarily complicated that requires nuance and a fair amount of briefing to even understand the concepts you're going to introduce, yeah. anytime you try and knock that out in a one-minute-long Instagram thing, you're never going to do it justice and you'll never come to a solution. And the only thing that will happen is people will get more confused and, and pushed back into a corner because like, I just want a simple solution right now so I can get back to my Snapchat. That's it. And that's it. But this is the fact of clearly, the, you know, the work that you do is that it takes a lot more than that. And you know what? It might be enough to just go... I went to this rally between the far right and the far left. I don't have the answer, but I can tell you that it's complicated and we need to listen to a lot more of what everybody has to say. That might be enough as a pathway. People just want a pathway. People just want an action point, you know? Yeah, I know. It just, it's, and I, I'm attracted to these sort of side issues sometimes, like the thing that's not discussed. Like I might discover that, oh, amongst the people I met on the far right, there was this real search for meaning and I could connect that to how, like, most people have a search for meaning, so they've totally screwed up yeah. in the way they've expressed their search for meaning. That's, that's a part of it. But you can't say that because it's like, oh, oh, what are you saying? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, Very what? fine people. Is that yeah, what you're yeah, saying, yeah, that, way, that what you're saying? And then not only that, now it's come to the point of why are you even talking yeah. to anyone? Like, it's, it's so weird. It's like there's been thousands of years of storytelling where the premise has been you, you talk and you tell a story and whatever. And now it's, there is this like weird thing. I, I kind of get away with it. I, th I feel like people who have like established some sort of uh, premise like 15 years ago or whatever, they're allowed to kind of go along the way. So I'm not complaining on behalf of myself. But, yeah, I mean, I mean you know, like 10 years ago, you, you've seen my work. It was like, oh, John goes and hangs out with these clansmen. And it's like, of course he would because that's fascinating. Mm. It, 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 <laughs> and why wouldn't he? But then, it, yeah, it's become this real recent thing where it's like, why are you platforming a... It's always like there's the most disingenuous, mm. glass half full bullshit where, where it's like, as if when I go, I went to the Ku Klux Klan as a Jew and sat there and blah, and the way I framed it, as if anyone, as if there's like one person out there who on a sincere level is like, oh, my God, he's giving, he's giving a platform uh, so the Ku Klux Klan can advocate them. It's just like so disingenuous and bullshit, but that's, that's where it is now. There's, and I think part of it is that because we were talking about how everyone needs angles or whatever, and so if you're a writer who's too unimaginative and too lazy to, like, leave, leave your keyboard and you just want to kind of have an angle, then your angle is always deconstructing other things that are out there and, you know, the people that, that have hit the streets and stuff. Does that, does that make sense or am I, no, am no, I sounding that, like that, a lunatic? That, no, that, no, that absolutely does because that, that's a part of it. And there's a few things to unpack there. I'll never forget the first time I ever saw you was on the 4x3 television. 4x3? Yeah, that's how long ago it was. <laughs> and you're the reason that I bought 
a high eight video camera and turned it around and held it on the end of my arm and filmed myself because I'd never seen anybody do that. And you did it on a, on a TV show called Race Around the World some 25 years ago, 26 years ago. And later that year, I did exactly the same thing, used a camera, filmed myself going around Europe with my dad, filmed my dad going back to Prague 30 years to the week after he escaped when the Russians came. And then two months later, used that same camera and that same technique to shoot my audition video for Channel V, which I got, that got me my job, all right? And I was inspired by the work that you did. I remember the very first time I saw you, I didn't, there was a lot going on in that show, but you naked at the Western Wall being berated by an IDF guy in broken English going, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Why are you naked in a St Kilda? You had like a St Kilda scarf on, yeah. streaking. And that was my first memory of this skinny blonde kid. <laughs> and usually, usually people say, oh, of course I look bad if you take that out of context. But I actually look worse when you take it in context. So I much prefer for people to take me out of context. But I've been to the Western <laughs> Wall. I've been to the Western Wall many times. Yes. All right. And That's in um, Jerusalem. Yes. I thought it'd be a good co-host and maybe... Appreciate that. Yeah. And by IDF, you mean an Israeli soldier. Israeli Defence Force, yeah. probably some 19-year... Well, he would have been probably 20. So anyway, I, I, the general shtick of that particular piece was that a lot of Jews in Melbourne go for the St Kilda Football Club because that's where they were living in St Kilda historically. And uh, St Kilda was, at least back then, very well known for being down the bottom of the ladder, near the bottom of the ladder all the time. Then one year, late 60s, I forget where, they won the grand final. So it was like this mm. uh, anomaly. And that year, the grand final fell on the holiest day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur, where Jews are in synagogue praying because the Jewish calendar is different, so it doesn't fall exactly on the yeah. same. Don't worry, the Christmas, the, it, it, Christian one as well. Like, why does Jesus die on a different day every year, but he's always born on the same day? Like, <laughs> it's really confusing stuff. So then uh, the angle was that what, what I heard growing up was that the reason St Kilda won that year in this anomaly was because all the Jews were in synagogue praying, and that, like, <laughs> proves <laughs> that we're following the one true faith. So I, I thought I'd test that about the power of prayer and and so I went to Israel and then I picked out, out this game, I forget, Port Adelaide, I don't know, versus St Kilda or something, like a game that was going to be played in the future and I did all this stuff to try to, yeah, use the power of prayer yeah. and, and ritual to try to affect the outcome of that game to see whether it worked or whatever. So, you know, like I put my footy tips into to the Western Wall folded up on a little piece of paper because you meant to put prayers in the Western Wall on little pieces of paper. Did a few other things and then also, yeah, I streaked mm. because that's what a true fan yeah. would do. So I thought, yeah, streaking with my St Kilda f scarf and beanie through the streets of the holy city yeah. was somehow... Yeah, bring about. It was before. Yeah. It was kind of before the second intifada. So you, you, you were kind of like before nine eleven. There was all this stuff you used to do before nine eleven that just sounds really strange now. Yeah. Well, look, mate, I'm I'm, I'm glad you did it, and I, I hope you don't feel any shame about it at all no. because you demonstrated to someone like me not only creativity in, in telling a story, but also you just got to commit. You got to 100% commit. If you're going to yeah. do it, if you want to make a point, you got to commit. And I took that, John, I took that through my career. But similarly, you were 
that theme extends to all the way to your conversation with the clan because you are you're you're running you know through an incredibly disputed part of the world, which a lot of people don't realise is that. We're sitting in in Collingwood in Victoria and across the road from where we're sitting right now, there are three trains sitting on top of a building, which I'm believing are offices. That's about the height of where the Dome of the Rock is, wouldn't you say? Above the Western Wall? I don't really know, but yeah, I'll go for it. It's probably about that high. It's not very high at all. You know, it's it's a really disputed part of the world. Yeah. And you were there, you know, you were were there between two incredibly... um, powerful forces and that's kind of interesting i just poured you a second glass but there's a lot of weird froth on that so probably don't go near that one i once gave i interviewed erin brockovich and i gave the, her, the lawyer woman i gave her tap water because i'm and an she, idiot and she sued you no she drank <laughs> <laughs> she drank it which is pretty wild you did touch on something before which i'm, I'm kind of interested in in your work you're often talking to people who are on the fringes of I guess, you know, belief and action. Mm. It seems as you you referred to it just then, this idea of once you say this particular one thing, then you are out for life, this cancelling idea. Or Mm. because you spoke to that person, you too, John Safran, you're out for life. That doesn't really service, does it? Well, I I don't care, but it's just, it's totally hypocritical because the way people find out about things is because People have gone out there and examined it and then come back and then people read it and then that's why they know it. I I remember at the real starting point of this around 2015 when this thing called the alt-right that people hadn't really heard about before uh, started to spike a little in the lead up to, you know, Trump getting elected was part of it, was, or the, the lead up to that, the campaign leading up to that. And, you know, people just didn't know what this thing was. It was like this strange thing. Like, aren't you, you know, if, if you went back even like a year earlier, like talking about things like the alt-right is like talking about, you know, people who believe in UFOs or something. It, mm. it was like this real obscure, strange, on the fringe thing or whatever. And then it was slowly coming more into the mainstream. And there was a writer for a magazine in America called uh, Mother Jones. And this writer, I don't know who he or she was, uh, wrote an article, it was called like the, the Dapper White Supremacist or, the, or something like that. And the point of that article was that, oh, you might think that the far right, you might have images that they're like Yahoo's, on the back of pickup trucks in the deep south with Confederate flags. But there's this new thing brewing where it's sharply dressed, you know, well-presented people who are trying to introduce the far right through that, through that means or whatever, right? And then this person got just so much flack where it was like, Ugh, why are you trying to present the far right as being respectable? It's like, what, what a messed up interpretation of that or why are you trying to present them as being dapper mm. and sharply dressed and it's, I, I'm just like on a different planet to that it's that person is saying that to f- warn you that yeah. and also the, the other thing is that I noticed because I had been interested in this topic of these fringe groups for years like on Triple J and everything like in my work and everything I found that yet yeah, yeah, people forget the tale or the starting point of why they know about these things in the first place. And they know about these things because that Mother Jones journalist went out there and interviewed the dapper far-right guy 
that's how you found out about it. You didn't like float into your head mm. by magic. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty galling, I reckon. But basically most people who just spend their time at a keyboard and don't leave the house or whatever, they only know about things because people who have left the house have gone out and on a quest to discover them and then brought back their stories. Would you say that that kind of cancelling out, that kind of how dare you, that kind of thing is almost a mirror version of the dehumanising that they're accusing the far-right people of? Oh, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the whole thing with conversations about this, it gets really confusing about how much online is the real world and, like, what weighting you give it. Because I might seem like I'm in a bubble, but I'm not. I actually do have friendship circles outside the bubble that I spend time with. And it's really, you really pick up that these conversations that the media class have based on spending all their day on Twitter, people outside the bubble just aren't thinking about things that way. I I, I remember, because I like following the movies and the box office and everything, and if you're sort of like narrowly focused on Twitter and everything around that, it's like, oh, my God, Birds of Prey has come out and there's two sides. There's the incels who can't stand that there's a powerful woman as a superhero. But then you've got the feminists on the other side and they love that there's... And anyway, there's this whole frigging conversation that goes on about that and because it's on Twitter, there it gets kind of amplified and then people like write stories about it or whatever. But like outside the bubble, like just people aren't thinking about it that way and they're, they're more like, oh, what's Birds of Prey? Like, you, you know, they're at that point. They're at the point of what's birds of prey whilst if, mm. if you kind of like just focus on this bubble, you get this totally distorted perception of the conversation. When you say bubble, what are you referring to? Uh, but by bubble I mean that a handful of people will say something on social media, then a journalist will write an article about it and it totally distorts what people are talking about and how much they care about it. Uh, To put it another way, I would love to set up a market research company, like a legit one that does data or legit and, you know, like the other research companies, that when something is discussed as if it's got this great meaning, how much people, based on social media how much people outside actually think about this. Let me give you an example. This book publishing company, they published all these classics, you know, like Wizard of Oz, the, those types of books. And But they, they, they did the covers, so non-white people were the illustrations on the covers. So like Dorothy's black on one version and she's Asian on this other version. And, yeah, and The Man in the Iron Mask, similar thing, and uh, Treasure Island. And so online this thing caught a light where it's like this is cynical, cheap diversity where you're actually, by publishing these books, you're distracting that you're not publishing books by black authors and this is really offensive. This is like whatever. I'm not saying that's the wrong argument or whatever. I'm just saying that this thing inflated and then suddenly these books were all discontinued. So this is is what I'd like. I'd like to have a market research company that does a legit who 
does that thing where they research, like, I don't know, they ring up a thousand black Americans or however they do their research, so it's a legit mm. quantitative qualitative research, to find out whether, like, that reflects what people outside that little bubble actually think about that. If you, you, you go to a thousand non-white Americans and say they've reprinted The Wizard of Oz and they've made Dorothy black on one edition and Asian on another edition, whether, it, it, you know, outside the bubble it is seen in this sort of like negative way in which these books must be discontinued or whether it's just, oh, oh yeah, okay, sure. Why not? Dorothy's black. <laughs> I, would, I would say your market research firm would get pretty much the same result every time until it's something that actually matters to people. And, and that's a really interesting point in that the very nature of how the media cycle is now, and it's been manipul- it's so mani- able to be n- manipulated as we have seen in, in elections now, that enough volume created by, and it can only be a few small amounts of people operating on a kind of amplified bot kind of scenario. If you get 10 people writing 300 tweets each, that's 3,000 tweets. So suddenly an algorithm spikes up. And I, I know this to be of absolute fact. There is software available, B2B software available that these media companies sit and go, oh, look, that's trending. People seem to be interested in this. There's eyeballs here. I'll write an article about that. They pluck this out of thin air. They then write an article about it. What do they use for sources? The tweets. And then that thing then gets spun up and then the comments on the bottom of that then become, you know, more fodder for the next article. So eventually by the time it gets and it goes up and up and up and up and up from blog to small website to bigger website to bigger website. So by the time it gets to news.com or Daily Mail, it has the air of legitimacy, but it's completely invented. And outside of those initial instigators, no one actually gives a shit. Yeah, but it's not even like they've, they've got a position on it. It's like they're just not thinking about no. something that way. It's, there's so many things like that, like when there's the all-female Ghostbusters. I but- like that film and people can get <laughs> fucked. It was great, but people lost their minds over it. Well, did they or did people on did a, did a handful of people online and it gets totally, uh, in the way you said, totally escalated when... Oh, I think that's what happened. In there was 99% a feedback. of yeah. cases, people just turned up to the movie and they're like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. It's got these... Yeah, I took my stepdaughter. We had a great time. That's it. Yes. That was it. And we went home and we had grilled hamburgers and then we went home. That was the end of it. Another thing I've noticed about this, what you're talking about, this culture, this online thing is it's very, and woke culture and stuff, is it's very American-centric, top-down, Americans setting the uh, agenda about something. Yeah. And the rest of the world is supposed to just go along with it. So, for instance, if there's a rule, God, it's it's really hard to pick an example because everything sounds so antagonistic, like I'm trying to make some particular point, which I'm not. The only point I'm trying to make is that there's often a a real American, and not even an American, a sort of, you know, a a very urban, not urban, what's the word, you know, like whatever Los Angeles and New York. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And San Francisco is. So they'll they'll set like a rule about something or other about, well, this is how gay, a gay issue or a trans issue or a race issue should be perceived or whatever. But they're not asking, what, what does the trans community in Romania, Nigeria, what do they think about the language around uh, trans people? And I'm not talking about Romanian Americans. I'm talking about Romanians. I'm not talking about... Mm. But, but it never occurs to... So, so there's this sort of like top-down kind of rules are set up where 
everyone in the world except for Americans aren't asked. Yeah. <laughs> That's not me saying that I've got a, I think I've got a, Position on it on that because I don't. I'm not, and I'm not saying. I'm just saying that it's 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 interesting that it never occurs to people that all these kind of rules are being set up. Yeah, and it's it's really American centric. But 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 you do find that from hyphenated Americans, whether they're by that I mean whatever Jewish Americans, Muslim Americans, gay Americans, trans Americans, all of them. In my experience, they don't ever ruminate over the hyphenated American part of their identity. And how that's in play for things. So yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it's that's the other interesting thing I find about woke culture is that it's this American set thing that kind of colonizes the world. Uh, you, what a what a antagonistic word to but use. It's a, it's, but, but you know what yeah, I mean? But it like, is. What? It is. And and I think it's the, the nature of those platforms being based in San Francisco that. Un- unknowingly, that culture of if you listen to someone like uh, Roger McNamee who wrote a book called Zucked. Yeah that culture comes down to the almost libertarian ideals of the very people that wrote the code, the kind of person who studies computer science and then gets themselves to Stanford from wherever they were in the country and flees and gets around these kind of libertarian and they're generally kind of white American guys, not a lot of diversity in the coding culture over there, that when they're writing a line of code that shows which algorithm will I show John Safran this morning while he's enjoying his cup of coffee, I'll go show him that one because way down deep in this code, there's this, you know, someone made a decision at that, that level and that stuff permeates. I mean, and you, and you can't ignore that, that we are seeing the effects of that at, at this end. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. It, I, can I give you another example yeah. just in case I sound mad that, that kind of illustrate and why I've, I came to this thinking was years ago I saw this documentary and it was about a, Pakistani-American punk band. And so the documentary was all focused around and, and, and how they perceived themselves as being Pakistani amongst Americans or, or amongst white or whatever. And that's what the whole documentary was. And the way they spoke, it was, you know, we're Pakistanis and da-da-da-da-da, which is all cool and totally legit, right? Then at the end of the documentary, they go to Pakistan and they're kind of walking around the streets and in that context, they're just loudmouth Americans. Like, like, like the Pakistanis went going, oh, my brothers or whatever. Like they were having these awkward conversations with the local Pakistani people because hyphenated American was so much of their identity that it kind of hadn't occurred to them before. When it does come to, when push does come to shove, there is no identity. We're just humans all breathing the same atmosphere. Oh, or what really about... It. <laughs> Or what about, well, I'm not saying it's, I'm just kind of adding this on, all this stuff I'm saying is kind of like plus. Like, okay. like, like obviously them as that band that it is kind of interesting and relevant and everything that they're all Pakistani-Americans. I'm just sort of like adding on a bit of like, oh, in addition, look at this way. I had another kind of really, I've seen discussion around Disney films. What's that one where it's a new one and there's, is it? Mulan? What's, what's? Mulan's quite an old one, but that's the, their first Asian princess. Yes, yes, yes. So when that's discussed online by Asian-Americans, do they think the instigating point of that, that Chinese story is them and in the context of it's an Asian-American story and it's like, well, no, it's a Chinese story. So you've got to kind of factor that into, 
I just noticed, yeah, around that film, where they'll talk. I read this article where they were talking about casting or whatever, and these Asian Americans were complaining that Chinese people were going to be cast in the film, and they felt this was a story for Asian Americans. And it just shows how, like, you start tripping over your own shoelaces and you know, how things just don't fit neatly. And and also that to me was just another example I thought of how like Americans just never process that they're Americans. <laughs> it does sound to me though that what you're describing within the hyphenated Chinese-American, you know, community there, it does sound a little like what you were alluding to when you were speaking with the people at these rallies, that there is a search for meaning. There is a search for, yeah. I just want to belong. Yeah. Why do you feel that we as humans have that? And why, you know, why do we go to any oh, lengths to get it? It's like, why, is, why does the blood pump through our veins the way it does? I think I could be wrong about something. I just think it's a given. I don't, I don't even know why. But most people are searching for meaning. And if people aren't, it's because they're in a situation where they found meaning and so they don't think about it that hard. But I could be wrong. There's probably just lots of people who don't go around looking for meaning and it just sort of... Because honestly, I feel like, you know, particularly when it comes to the identity politics around, around race and like I'm a straight white hetero, you know, cisgendered middle-class male, all right? I'm like, I won the bloody lottery, okay? Though the, the idea of, you know, sometimes people find a great amount of empowerment when they go, I saw it at school. You know, I saw there was the kids who were from Italian descent at my school and they banded together. And they were like, but we are the Italians, so therefore we are, you know. And there's, there's, a, there's a feeling of unity. There's a feeling of power. There's a feeling of I'm not alone. Yeah. You know, and I think that's all any of us really want to feel. It's like we're not alone in this. There's other people like me who feel about the world like I do. I'm not alone in this. I'm not nuts when I want this for me and my family. And as you mentioned, you know, it, it sounds like the people that you met at these rallies, they're just looking for that as well. It's a weird way they're going about it as far as I'm concerned, but they're just looking for that. When I was at these rallies, I, I really noticed a distinction between the organisers and the people who turned up to the rallies. Mm-hmm. So often the organisers were really intelligent and they knew exactly what they were doing and in the same way that you just have criminals out there and murderers and bad people out there, there are people who are, have real bad faith and they kind of want to, you know, they hate people. They, you know, in the case of the people at the rallies, they might hate, you know, Muslims or Jewish people or Aboriginal or whatever and, and like, they're really, they know what they're doing and that's just what they're doing. But whilst the people who turned up to the rally, some of the, they're, they're the ones where there was a lot more, in my mind, a lot more flexibility that maybe they were caught up in something that they can get uncaught up in because they hadn't thought it through that way, which is scary on its own. Like to give you a, a real sharp example, what I mean is I was talking to the, uh, one woman at this rally. Where was it? This one was in, it would have been in Bendigo, I think. But I spoke to this one woman and she was going, oh, it's, I was like, oh, why are you here at the rally or whatever? And she goes, oh, it's really good because these guys, she was talking about the organisers, the far right organisers. She goes, see, we, in my suburb, we've got a real ice problem and no one does anything about it. And so these guys are saying that, oh, we can help people get off ice and it's really good that people are banding, to get, banding together to help people get, and I'm like, what the hell? Like, and this woman was being totally sincere. She wasn't, it wasn't, she wasn't like tricking me. She was at this rally because she's concerned about, the ice problem in her community. And so... Which and is the, a really and, valid force. I know. 
I mean, the other thing about her was uh, I remember was she was not living in the lap of luxury. She was talking about how she's couch surfing at the moment because she had to leave her house because she had an abusive partner. So that was like another. So suddenly you've got this woman who's couch surfing because her partner's abusive and her house isn't safe, who knows there's an ice problem in her community and somehow these manipulative jerks on the top tier jerks have framed things in a certain way that she thinks that's her solution. So, oh, yeah, it's complicated. And the other reason why her story is credible is that so much of what these far-right people were saying at these rallies, you had to read between the lines. So anyone with any sense of history... Or like, we know what's going on. Like, and, and, you know, and, and so there'd be the bit at the start of their sentence where it's like, we have nothing against Muslims, but da-da-da-da-da. And so this woman would just take that literally, like, oh, okay, they've got nothing against Muslims. <laughs> and whilst someone like me obviously would be going, oh, come on, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's clearly part of the bullshit rhetoric. Of course you've got some problem with Muslims. When you look at our country and you look at, how, how much it's changed even in the time that you and I have been alive. We're yes. a very similar age. What do you see going forward are the challenges that we face around that kind of in our community, in our, dare I say it, you know, the push towards, you know, us having to figure out how to all live in a time of incredible resource pressure? Well, I think we have to uh, round up people. No, uh, <laughs> I don't Jeez, that's a bit hard, isn't it? Isn't it uh, I, I do think there's a thing in Australia where you've got issues around uh, uh, the Indigenous community and then there's kind of everything else and to kind of like bundle it in all together can uh, not be helpful. When you start finding out stories about the history of Australia, it is just mad. It's, not, it's, not, it's just mad that you kind of don't know about these stories and that we kind of tried to sideline them or whatever. So there's that, that aspect. I was hanging out with this dude because um, he was doing a documentary and he, he's a friend of mine and he sort of wanted my help and advice or whatever. And he was looking at these like place names all around Australia and like why they're called that, like things you just drive by because it's on a sign or whatever. And all well, things, like, oh, like Murdering Creek up yeah, near yeah, Yandina? Yeah, yeah, all that kind of yeah. stuff. And it is like it is totally baffling that that's – yeah. kind of not part of uh, what Australia has to kind of have a... It's interesting a, a you say that. Like there's, there's what we, as our shared history, mm. as part of how we got here, there is this extraordinary thing with Indigenous Australians and then there's everything else. Do you feel we kind of need to get around but the it, Indigenous Australian thing first. I mean, and I'm no expert in this, like, so you should get someone else in who knows more. But even when it comes to things like poverty, for instance, like when you go up to the Northern Territory for the first time, it's like, what the f*** is going on? And, yeah, and yeah. that's another thing where there's, there's Indigenous and then there's everything else. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes by, like, bringing all social justice issues in together, which is obviously good in some way because it's like there should be allyship and there should yeah. be like we're all in it together. So it's totally cool or whatever, but there, there is an aspect where that can hide what this like extraordinary problem that is uh, different to everything else. Where does leadership play a role? Like, oh do you, do, When you look around the world, are there, are there any countries that have kind of got it together a little bit around this? I love watching the 
leading up to the American elections and watching all the, the candidates. It's a circus. There's so much more entertaining. <laughs> not, not so much. Last time was totally mad when they're leading up to Trump and, uh, and Hillary and watching, watching all the, the, the different candidates because it, it's like Australia but on acid and almost like you, you have to stop to think, hang on, this isn't a, a play. No. Like this is, there's more fascinating character studies going on here yeah. than like in most films, but it's, it's the real world or whatever. I'm wondering though if, the, if, as you mentioned before, we don't hear about the trans experience, is the, the leadership around how do we get people who have different value systems and different belief sets and different cultural practices, how do we get them to cooperate to create a community? Is that coming from, say, for example, uh, a leader in, a, in an archipelago in, in Indonesia somewhere? Is that coming from a place on a border area of India and Pakistan? Is that, is that leader, is that model in a community somewhere that we just don't bloody see? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's far more challenging and pressing resource issues in, in, in places like that than there are in this place of, look, and I'd, I'd love to debate with you about this, but I'm about to flush 10 perfectly good drinking water, litres of drinking water down after a poo because yeah. I ate three times as many calories as anybody else in the world well, you're last gonna, night. You're not going to like this, but uh, I once went out with this girl. She was really nice or whatever, right? And she didn't want to flush the toilet for reasons you're saying. Yeah. And I was just, listen, can you just save the environment some other way? Can you just goddamn flush the toilet? That was my number opinion. ones or number twos? Uh, number ones. Oh, well, we have, we have a, if it's yellow, let it mellow in our house. Well, that's fine or whatever, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I need, I need to be brought along. I'm like, I, I'm a, an old curmudgeon. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, uh, and we bucket flush in our place at the moment because Sydney's under, undergoing a cataclysmic drought. Um, drought's probably the wrong word because droughts end. This is our weather now. So, um, yeah, we bucket flush at the moment. So I haven't pushed the flush button and all I do is I just put litres and litres of water that I've showered with down after my poo and it's great. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just like I'd be lying in bed and psychologically just thinking about that toilet bowl. <laughs> it would break me. <laughs> if you close the lid, it's fine, John. There's some environmental things where, like, for instance, telephone books. Yeah, I remember them. Where I just think about old people and alienated people who, like, need the phone book and so I'm thinking, oh, is there some other way to save the environment besides because I'm thinking about those people who need the phone book. Yeah. And, and so is there some other way to save the environment besides not producing phone books for those people anymore? I 100% agree and, it's, uh, and it goes back to what we were saying at the very, very start. There's not one in, or two environmental saving solutions. There are a thousand for every person and it's nuanced in every case. So, for example, the old person who, you know, probably lives up the street here in Collingwood is wondering, why is there so many coffee roasters around my house that used to be factories? I'm the only person left on my street. Everyone else has turned into a, you know, bespoke brewery. Yeah. Where's my phone book? Get off my lawn. I'm just going to run the air conditioning with all the windows open during summer. That person needs to be shown, taken by the hand, you know, because the solution that works for them is a completely different, they're not bucket flushing. You know, yeah. because they never had to. You know, it's just not culture. Like, I poo, I push the button. That's it. You know, and, and that's the thing. It's like, how do you take those people? Because they are as important and valuable. as and anyone that says, you know, and going on 
I spoke about nuclear power last night. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, yeah. The reason, no, the reason I find it interesting is because when I grew up, because we're old, there was a point where that was the ultimate villain. There was no bigger villain it was. than the nuclear power, right? But then AOC, uh, Miss Cortez, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the young American politician who the kids are all into, and I saw her say, oh, we've got to look at nuclear power. And, and she just said it like something that would uh, yeah. get you, quote, unquote, cancelled as the most yeah. provocative thing you could say back in the 1980s yeah. while you're listening to your Midnight Oil yeah. Blue Sky Mine record. <laughs> and, Which and, is a great record. <laughs> the, it's like clearly life has moved on. And, well, and, yeah, and that's it, what I spoke about last night in that, because no one talks about the fact that nuclear power is something like 470 times safer than coal. Oh, I love this. Yeah. No, oh. I don't, I'm not saying I, I love your, I love how you're this crazy advocate for it. This is good. Well, no, I'm just an advocate for facts. Yeah, okay, right. sure. Don't get me wrong. It's super expensive and way more expensive than solar and wind. Mm. And, and solar and wind now can just beat it at the bottom line. But, you know, just to, just to reference the, the blowback yeah. uh, of, of talking about this stuff, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you, the amount of people that are going me today because of what I said. But the fact is that it's 472 times safer than coal and they don't make an HBO miniseries for <laughs> the thousands of horrible airline disasters. So I was about to say, I was about to bring up Chernobyl. With yeah, you. right. But they don't make an HBO miniseries about the thousands of horrible airline disasters that killed thousands and thousands of people, but led to all the safety devices, safety procedures and practices that now make airline travel the safest bloody thing we can do. But they did get Jared Harris to be in Chernobyl. All right, and that's the story they told. It was horrible, but nuclear meltdown is the shark attack of energy. It's a horrible way to go, but it's so incredibly rare, but it, it gets un unreasonably elevated. And that's all I was saying. But people are losing their fucking minds at me because oh, I'm should... apparently pro-nuclear. But the other thing is like phase four nuclear power, John, which is really great. Phase four? Fourth generation nuclear power. Um, oh, by runs... the way, to listeners, I don't know anything about this topic. So if he's like going into some weird conspiracy zone here, not... like I'm not, I, I just don't know what's happening. I love it though. Go on. Um, I'm on it. I, I got my facts right because a, a nuclear physicist emailed me last night and said, I'm so grateful you spoke about that because not enough people know. Fourth generation nuclear power runs on spent nuclear fuel. Okay, so spent nuclear fuel from all those old reactors from the uh, 70s, 60s, 50s even, has a half-life of hundreds of thousands of years. When, they, when you run them through one of these fourth-generation reactors, that cuts that half-life down to a couple of hundred years, which is great news. They've got molten salt in them, so if they break, they freeze, they don't melt down. And this is an extraordinarily important thing that we need to talk about because if, it really, if push really bloody does come to shove, and I fear it may, Nuclear power generation may be the only thing we can do as far as, you know, power we need to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And that, and we need to be okay with that. Further back to our conversation, the fact that I even mentioned the N-word, people <laughs> lose their fucking minds because it is just so confronting to them, but it's the truth. And but, but also you should just be able to bring that up and kick the can down the road and yeah. kind, of, kind of go, oh, this, I'm just throwing this in as something we can ruminate over. We don't yeah. have to... You're not like signing off on 
government policy or anything. No. It's like, oh, well, you should think about this because it's of an this option. or this. Yes. And we should have it. And, and like if, it, if push really comes to shove and we can't get over coal, but if the only way we can get to 50% less carbon emissions by 2030, which we absolutely have to do. What, if, what, what's happening in Japan with nuclear power? They have said, they've actually said, I don't think they're going to build any more plants. They're going, we want to burn hydrogen. Give us your hydrogen. We'll, bu- we'll burn it. And that's different to... Uh, hydrogen is incredible because hydrogen, the, the first internal combustion engines were like, we're talking hundreds of years ago, some of them were on liquid hydrogen, all right, which in its liquid form, hydrogen is no more or less, uh, no more dangerous and no less safe than petrol, okay, as far as flammability goes. Hydrogen is made out of air and water. That's it. When you burn it, you just get oxygen. It's an incredible thing to, to combust. We can, at current infrastructure levels, because on an ionic level, if you put all the hydrogen in the current gas system, it, the seals don't work um, because it's a really weird atomic situation that's happening. On, on the atom, atomic level is what I'm talking about. But we can put up to 10% hydrogen in the current existing national gas pipeline and no one would even notice that they're cooking their eggs with 10% hydrogen. But hydrogen is a renewable resource and you can get it by using power from the sun. There's a company in the in the Western Australia that use iron ore and methane as a feedstock and they make hydrogen. And if we, li- we can liquefy this and create an export market and we've got countries like Japan and countries like Korea going, we won't run our economies on hydrogen. Who's going to give us hydrogen? And we have this opportunity now as a nation. We stand on the cusp of an incredible economic boom, but yet not enough people are talking about that. Well, you can have your nuclear power as long as you flush your toilet. That's the balance. That's it. <laughs> that's it. But hang, can you tell me? Because I'll be flushing you, my toilet with go, desalination what, what was going to go on? I, I want to know what was going to go on when they wanted to dam the Franklin River. What was that in aid of? I don't know, but I remember they lost them an election. I remember that's when the kind of the environmental movement. Because that was the, about coming up with uh, another power source? Perhaps. I, d- I don't know. Yeah, so uh, yeah. I need to look back into that. But I remember David Bellamy showed up and, you know, holy shit, we're in trouble because the, the prefects have come down from England and, um, you know, we're in the, trouble now. The reason that's top of mind for me is because at the end of last year, so late December 2019, I decided to go on an eight-day whitewater rafting trip down the Franklin River. So you, you do the whole... 100 kilometres or whatever. Wow. And it was an example of these things because I travel a lot for the stuff I write. And when you arrive somewhere, there's all this stuff going on like in the shadows and beneath the surface that you just can't identify when you're first there because you don't have enough information. So one of the things I found out on, on the last day that I was there was that all the, all the tour operators, they weren't from Tasmania. Like the, the guys who were like, Paddling the raft, like we're paddling them too, but there was obviously a a guide, and a, a guide, safety guide, yeah, or whatever. whatever. Yeah. And they weren't Tasmanian. And then I found out on the last day that because of that fight back in the eighties between the uh, environmentalists and the and the loggers, and uh, like there's still a raw and the environmentalists won. There's still this raw nerve there in uh, Tasmania. And there's still a lot of anger because there, there were people there were going, well, you know, I, I could have had a much better job or I could have had a job if whatever, but these environmentalists, most of which were inner city latte sipping mm-hmm. Melbourneites or whatever. I'm not saying that's the truth, but that's how they perceived it. And so there's still that anger there. So it's really controversial to be a tour guide because what you're doing is 
you're basically saying your message is, isn't it, we won Man. and isn't it great? And we're showing all these latte-sipping yeah. environmentalists from inner city Melbourne who come down here. Yeah. Uh, these are the spoils of war, fuck they're, they're you. The, they're yeah. Or whatever. And so therefore it would be quite provocative for a lot of people who actually live in Tasmania to have to sit around the table, mm. you know, at Christmas and it's like, well, what do you do? And to say that you were one of the whitewater rafter operators is like a, is like a, a contentious thing to say. And this is the... You know, this is the thing that I think we need to talk about, and it, and it goes back all the way to what drives people towards the the right, alt right, those rallies that you were talking about is equitable economic transitions away from ways of of living that are carbon intensive to ways of living that aren't. And that's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, but that, that's what that's what it does. If you if you suddenly disenfranchise thousands and thousands and thousands of people who work in the coal mining industry and go, sorry, get fucked, good luck feeding yeah. your kids they're going to get driven to someone that goes, you know what, I've got this. And they may have a really horrible, horrible message and I'm going to help you pay for your kid's education or, or whatever. Like, yeah, sure, they go on about Muslims, but they're helping me pay for my kid's education. You know, that, and that's the thing, you, you risk really alienating people. And so that's, I think, the great opportunity we have now is to have this inclusive transition and fair and equitable transition from some industries into other industries. And that's really, really important because otherwise you get what you, you have this generation's deep resentment that will affect a community incredibly. And it's, 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 it's really, really important. Just a moment away from the John Safran chat to talk to you about the other podcast that I do at the moment with James Matheson. It's called Idle Australians where each week Jim and I touch on the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture, but it's also an opportunity to just catch up with Jimmy, who has a a view of the world that I believe more people should know about. He's a great human being. I love him to pieces. You can find Idle Australians, I-D-L-E, Australians, in the same podcast app that you downloaded this podcast from, and I'd really appreciate your support. Okay, you might hear an ad here. If you do, thank you. If you don't, We'll be back with John in just a second. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We've done an hour. I want to shift very, very hard. I want to do a big fucking handbrake turn and talk to you about the very important topic, John. Yes. Of Scrabble. Oh, Scrabble, great. Yeah, I've been um, playing it as, yeah, we, we play Scrabble, dear listener. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't, I didn't. Why didn't I bring a board? 
there. Yeah, I know. There was a time when I would oh, come to Melbourne. This is so annoying. I, I tell you why this is so annoying. I, I had a board in my, the boot of my car ah. and like two days ago or three days ago, I just sort of not even really know. It wasn't like I made this passionate decision. Yeah. But, you know, you've got lots of junk in the boot. I was going, oh, I'll take some of the junk out of the car and I took it out. And since then there's been two occasions, here's the second one, where it would have freaking been handy to be able to go, okay, I'll just pop out there. I'll be three minutes. I'll come back with the board. Play some tiles. Yeah. The, the new word list has been released. Oh. The tw- in 2019. So every few years, it's not every year, but every few years, a new word list is released and it's based on other dictionaries. So it's not like the Scrabble dictionary people go, oh, these are some new words we've heard. Let's put them in there. It's, it's sort of more, you know, it's less subjective than that. So if you've got a problem with words in the Scrabble dictionary, which some people do, they go, I can't believe XU is a word. Well, don't blame the Scrabble dictionary people. Blame the Chambers dictionary people for putting in XU in their yeah. goddamn dictionary. But what I love about the word list is when it comes out, it often hints or shows like where the world is going or where it is at the moment. So, for instance, a lot of Q without you words came in to the Scrabble Dictionary maybe, what, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that. And it was because there was... Well, part of it was it was there'd been immigration. So you had like people from a country like Arabs and Muslims and they, they come to the West and they, then they start using these words that are like Arabic words and they need uh, an English transliteration for them mm. and then they become English words in themselves. And uh, like Kibla is one, Q-I-B-L-A. That's the direction you face when praying to Mecca, Right. And so anyway, so the, the whole, the influx of all these Q without U words spoke to like an immigration pattern in the West. And anyway, the, the latest one, there's a lot of words that are, are, are all those, God, how do I say it without sounding like I'm being a, a smart aleck or whatever. There, there's all those words like gender fluid and mansplaining and manspreading. And, and yeah, a lot of the new words speak to to that, that, that world we're talking about before, that's sort of like, taken over everywhere. That's extraordinary that a Scrabble word list provides a signal to a cultural shift. Yeah. For, for people- oh, ZE's in it, which is, so the pronoun of ZE, I don't know. Oh, that's a gender neutral pronoun. Yeah. Yes, So that's, that's changed the game, dear listener. The real controversial words that come into Scrabble, well, not controversial, it's not, it's not like, oh, there's this new word and we put it no, in. Because there's a great amount of strategy. If I'm playing John, I'm counting yous. I'm counting how many yous are on the board because I know how many yous are in the bag and I know that if I've got, you know, if he's got the cue, if I get as many yous as I can out and don't put, that's going to leave him with 10 points and I, I might, it might just be a game winner. So there's a lot of strategic advantage to re- yes. using the right and wrong words. And, and, and the sort of the easiest words that are really helpful and just change the game are these two-letter words where you have one, one letter that has a real high value. So the high value letters are Z, Q, X and J. So Power tiles. Power tiles. So as soon as you have these new two-letter words that have one of those power words, that it just changes the entire game. So, for instance, before QI came around, so we're, we're going back decades, so Qi, as in the Chinese mystical life force, before that came around, you had to plan your whole game that, okay, I've got a Q and, oh, my God, I've got to wait to procure a U 
And then it's like having uh, a hand grenade with a pin out. You've yeah, got to get rid of it. Yeah, got to get rid. Got to get rid of it. And then as soon as the Scrabble diction word list comes out, it's like oh, cheese now word QI. Suddenly it's oh, it's not a ha- as he said, it's not a hand grenade. It's just this easy way because I is such a common letter. It, it, and so it just changes the whole game for I think for I think it's but fine, it, but it just changes. So the fact that there's now the gender neutral pronoun ZE. That frigging changes everything in, in the same way. It's it's it's, it's redirected. This is the, the strategy the of Scrabble. QI is very much that is the exact reason why Darren Hinch refused my game invitation. I said, Darren, I'd love to play on Scrabble one day. And for people who don't know, Darren Hinch is a firebrand Australian journalist and, and broadcaster who literally wrote the book on Scrabble. He is the man that is credited as taking Scrabble from just some fun parlour game to the international competitive thing that it is. It's a really good book if you want to re- read it. And I said, oh, I'd love to play at Scrabble one. He goes, no, nah, I refuse. Since QI has come in, it's ruined the game. I was like, come on, man. Yeah. Come on, man. But what it what it does though, and and conversely, did, did you know? To give it, to uh, give a comparison, so people know that it, before QI came around, when that wasn't there, it was like Test cricket, yeah. and then QI makes it more. What's it called? Twenty twenty. It's more twenty twenty. It's just yeah. like I don't. But I don't think it's a problem. But it does. It does change. It just changed the game. I, I, I think I'm on the double edged sword. Like if, so, now that QI is around, for example, or ZE. Yeah. Now I have to be so careful where I put like a four or five letter word that's got an I or an E. I can't put that I or an E next to yes, any exactly. doubles or triples. Yeah. And it makes the game, ev- like it makes every I dangerous. It makes every E dangerous. Yeah, no that's matter a where you put point. it, you've got to be so strategic. I, I tend to, I'm, you know, I take this way too seriously. So I do warn people before I play them. I'm like, I give them the dictionary and say, you're allowed to look up before you put down Yeah, because I will crush you. I know, I know that, you know, you are my relative. <laughs> I will crush you. <laughs> uh, but there was a time where I knew, I think it was like 900 threes, three-letter words. There was a time where I, I knew maybe about half of them wow. just off the top of my head. But I was right into Stefan Fatsis, that book Word Freak, and yeah. I lived with two other guys. We played three games a night. We had a leaderboard. It was pretty – like I guess other people where they live in a share house, they have other kinds of practices and – but ours was Scrabble and it was uh, a pretty epic thing. One of the pleasures about Scrabble is it opens up your brain in this, a, a bit like I, like I wish I knew a musical instrument, but maybe if you play a musical instrument, you know it kind of just opens up parts of your brain that other people don't massage or, or, uh, or, or activate because you just have to think about things in a slightly different way. So Scrabble's really great like that. So it's not, it's not like this reductive thing where it's like, oh, it's painful and you have to, it, it's like, oh, you just learn words or whatever. It, it's really helpful beyond that. It just opens up, your, it, it opens up your brain as surely as taking in an acid tab does. I would, I would agree. I, and I was just actually having this conversation with my Uber driver on the way here about how the things that are in the creative space help me do my other jobs. Yeah. Right, particularly, and this is why hobbies are really important because you massage your brain, you make sure your brain works in different directions, and you look for solutions elsewhere. And that looking for solutions elsewhere stuff is still buzzing when you go to work. And then you say you've got a, you know, there's an empty whiteboard in this room. When you're faced with an empty whiteboard at work, your brain knows how to look in different directions for solutions because you've been massaging it over here. When you travel, do you take a travel board with you? Uh, I didn't take it and I regretted it. I didn't take a whitewater rafting down the Franklin River. But mm. I will next time. I mean, yeah, I'm really, I'm really annoyed I just 
when I, my Scrabble I, when I used to travel alone, I don't anymore. I'm married and have kids now. But when I traveled alone, I would take a Scrabble board everywhere and it was such a great way to meet people. It was such a bloody great way to meet people. And then to have subsequently a fist fight with people. <laughs> no, <laughs> not a fist fight, just a conversation. It's like if you, you want know? to fight but, you know, you don't want to go through that whole thing of getting drunk and everything. Did just, you ever play well, in – you played Darren Hinch. Yeah, that's true. I played him. Who else have I played that might be – no, you're, um, you, you might be my most, uh, you know, <laughs> celebrated Scrabble <laughs> partner. But we've played like, what, half a dozen times? Ten, At least, Ten yeah. times, yeah, a dozen yeah. times? I, don't I played, um, I used to take it on the road with Idol and um, Ian Dicko Dixon once threw down Zonal on a triple. And Pretty I was good. really impressed. Like, Do you know if you play Scrabble? Uh, 50 Cent because recently Eminem was, uh, I think 50 Cent was getting some sort of award or something and he, he was giving the speech at the start and he just said he mentioned that 50 Cent is really great at Scrabble, which suggests even though that Eminem must play Scrabble with 50 Cent, I reckon. Like why would Eminem know that if he wasn't playing Scrabble? Well, if you're a rapper, what yeah. better game to play than a game that challenges your vocabulary? Yeah. My goodness, maybe that's the next Music Jamboree, John. Yeah. Maybe Music Jamboree 3. <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> That's epic. I'm so grateful that we got a chance to stand a chat. Um, no, thank you. You know, I'm really grateful for the, the work you do and the contribution you have to our community. You're, you've got a really important voice and your inquisitive way of looking at the world is, is really important. Thank you, sir. Looking forward to you developing a, a nuclear-powered <laughs> Scrabble board <laughs> and flush, well, flush your toilet. Look, for one... Fourth generation nuclear power. What is your girlfriend or is she what, wife, your wife? What does wife. she think about you not flushing the toilet? Well, my wife is from Fiji where fresh water is a very, very valuable resource. Mm-hmm. So not flushing number ones is pretty much par for the course. Maybe it's her. There's this thing I've noticed. Sometimes a guy has an idiosyncratic belief, like mm. political belief or something. And it's like, okay, that's fine or whatever. But I don't know, you just kind of think about it. And then you find out that their wife or their partner, like that's their thing or whatever. Oh, right. Yeah, so I wonder if I meet your Fijian wife, whether she's going to be like she's like really pro-nuclear power and stuff like no, that. No, 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 no. Like you find out like with that boycott of Israel, like I think it was, was it Red Hot Chili Peppers? I don't know. I don't know who it was. I can't remember yeah. or whatever, right? Oh, no, Radiohead. That's it. Yeah. So Radiohead went to Israel, which was seen as controversial. And, and you do kind of go just in that way. Just They've obviously got enough money and stuff. Like why would they mm. – why are they starting problems for themselves or whatever? Like I'm just, just being really – looking at a real cynical yeah. way or whatever. Yeah, and then you find out that the, one of the guys, his wife or girlfriend is Israeli or whatever, and it's like, oh, okay, now it all makes sense. Right. It all falls into place. <laughs> right. It's just, look, the flushing toilet thing is just about resources, John. Yeah. And we use, don't get me wrong, the pee doesn't sit there. We just use uh, old dishwater and shower water to, to flush it down because why I use perfectly good drinking water to put my poo down when so many people on this planet and in our country, in our city, don't have water. And that's really it. You're amazing, John. Thanks thank, for taking thank the you. time to do no, this, buddy. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is John Safran. His new book is called Puff Peace, How Philip Morris Set Vaping Alight. And if there are young people in your life, you will know how intense the vaping situation is. And um, it's a worthy, worthy, worthy book 
to get amongst. He's a great Australian. He's a great human being. The world needs more people like John Safran. I hope he never, ever, ever stops what he's doing because it's just, I think it's just absolutely, absolutely brilliant. You find him online, johnsafran.com. He's also on Twitter, Instagram, John Safran, J-O-H-N-S-A-F-R-A-N. Thanks heaps for listening. If you do need me, if you want to get in touch, send us your email at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, Osha underscore Ginsburg. And look, if this podcast has brought you value, just tell someone, please. Tell someone about this show. That, that would be what a, a, the big ask. I'm not going to ask you to you know, do a Patreon at the moment or anything like that. I just ask that you tell someone about this show. And that'd be a humongous help for me because people come and go all the time. People subscribe and then people unsubscribe. You know, they find different podcasts they want to follow. So if you could tell someone that you know about this show, I'd really appreciate it. Scroll back through the back catalog. Maybe you'll find something interesting. Thanks heaps. I should let you know, Masked Singer, season three starts tonight and next Sunday. I'll talk more about this on Friday, but next Sunday is that SBS documentary that I was telling you about, that I was working on this about this time last year. So, um, I really hope that you're okay and uh, you look after yourself. And until I see you on Thursday with James for Idle Australians, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.